You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And, and you got to love, you got to love Baptism Sundays, right? Like, how many love Baptism Sunday? All right, yes. Baptisms are an awesome time of listening to someone's testimony of faith, of remembering again the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that secured our salvation. Baptisms are a great expression of faith, even initial faith. But we always remember, even in the midst of baptism, that that is an early step in the walk of faith. Faith is proven not in the easy moments inside the walls of a church building, but where in where we turn where life gets hard. Faith is proven in where we turn when life gets hard. And we actually see that in Colby's life and in his testimony, don't we? Right? Like, like he had an early experience, a seed planted where the word was sowed into his life. But then faith was developed, it was deepened, it was strengthened through the terrible tragedy of the death of his brother Philip. I remember that. I remember walking with Tom and Colby during that time. And I saw their faith deepen and develop. And then there were other things that had to come into Colby's life at another point so that he's here today and getting baptized. But our faith is proven in where we turn when life gets hard. When we are faced with despair over circumstances or, or suffering or sin, when we're confronted with strong temptations that just seem impossible to overcome, and how is this ever going to be gone from my life, Lord? When the deceiver and the accuser has, has beaten you down with guilt and shame so much that you just feel like you can't get out from under it. It's where you put your trust in those moments that proves your faith. Am I going to turn to myself? Am I going to turn to others? Or am I going to turn to the Lord? And so where do you put your faith when you are faced with despair? With despair, with that that sense of loss, hopelessness, extreme grief. It's one of the hardest places to express our faith. Often we can think of despair as the enemy of faith, or even the opposite of faith but but in fact despair is exactly where faith is born strengthened renewed and refined if we allow it to c.s lewis says it this way in his reflections after the death of his wife that together are compiled into a book called a grief observed he says you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. 
And we are going to see that exact principle play out today in our study of John chapter 11. Here's our big idea for today. Believe. Even through despair, trusting that Jesus is carefully working to show you the glory of God. Believe, even through despair, trusting that Jesus is carefully working to show you the glory of God. Today is is Palm Sunday. It's, It's the first day of what is known as Holy Week. It's the week where we remember the last days of Jesus as he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to take those sins away. And it's where he rose again to give us new life in him. It's a week of intense sorrow mixed with overwhelming joy. It's a week of dark despair mixed with bright hope. A week of intense suffering mixed with ultimate healing. And so we're taking a two-week break from our series through the book of Mark, and we're going to focus our hearts on what it means to believe in the crucified and risen Lord. We've called this little mini-series, Believe, Total Faith in the Resurrection. See, sometimes we get confused about what constitutes true belief, about what constitutes saving faith. And on the one hand, we, we think that belief is just intellectually acknowledging or knowing the fact that Jesus exists. And the fact that he died and rose again. And that's not true biblical faith. We see even the demons believing that. On the other hand, we sometimes think that that if we really have pure faith, if it's true faith, then it must mean that we never face things like despair. Or, or we're never disappoint, disoriented or disappointed by the sin and fallenness of this world. Or, or that we never doubt God's goodness or ability to save. And, and so when those things do enter our hearts then, it, it causes us to question our salvation and it might even lead us into a spiral of fear and anxiety. And too often we think that despair or disorientation or doubt are the opposite of faith, when in reality they are the furnace in which faith is forged. The the truth is that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the accounts of Holy Week meet us right in those places. We are called to believe. We are called to fully trust. We are called to fully follow when belief is hardest to come by. We're called to believe in something that is nearly unbelievable. A God who sent His Son into the world as a man. That God-man who lived a perfect life and yet died in our place for our sin. A fully human body that was raised to new life and glorified so that we can now have faith and new life in Him. And so this week we are going to explore what it looks like to believe First of all, through our despair. That's today. And then, on Good Friday, we're going to consider belief through our disorientation. When the world just seems upside down, the gospel is often upside down and unexpected and disorienting. 
And that can make faith challenging in those moments. And then next Sunday, on Easter Sunday, come back, and we're going to explore belief when we are faced with doubt. Belief, faith, through my despair, my disorientation, and my doubt. By the way, you'll notice that I'm, I'm using the terms faith and belief interchangeably. And that, that's because the Bible uses them interchangeably. It's not, as the words often mean in our common language today, that belief is like an intellectual assent and and faith is like a genuine trust in God. That might be the way that we sometimes use it in English, but but both belief and faith translate the word pistis or pisteo or its related forms, which the Lexham Theological Dictionary word, uh, I'm sorry, Lexham Theological Word Book defines as the act of believing or trusting something on the basis of its truthfulness or reliability. So whether I'm using the word faith or I'm using the word belief, I'm I'm talking about this, the act of believing or trusting something on the basis of its truthfulness or reliability. One biblical writer who who loves this word group is the Apostle John, the the writer of the, the fourth gospel. In fact, he He said that the whole purpose of his recording the particular events of the life of Jesus in his gospel was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Every single story that John chose to record about Jesus was to that purpose, to that end. And so I thought it would be good to ground our study in Holy Week in John's gospel if we're going to call the series Believe. And so today, uh, through the account of Jesus calling Lazarus out of his grave, we're going to see what it looks like to pursue faith when we're faced with despair. John 11, the story of Lazarus, the events surrounding his death and... Well, I won't give it away. It takes place shortly before Holy Week. Uh, Eastern Orthodox churches observe the Saturday before Holy Week as Lazarus Saturday. And there's a good reason for that. Um, John indicates a little bit of time went between the raising of Lazarus and the, the triumphal entry on, on Sunday morning. Uh, but the two events are, are very closely related. Uh, Jesus' popularity is growing at this time. The, and this event catapults him into messianic status. Especially for the people who are outside Jerusalem. At the same time, it polarizes Jesus even more with the chief priests and the Pharisees and the people inside Jerusalem. We see this contrast, especially in John, of outside and inside Jerusalem, outside the heart of the nation, outside of the religious pulse of the nation, and inside those groups. And it motivates the religious leaders to even more to find a way to get rid of Jesus. And so while the raising of Lazarus technically does not happen during Holy Week, it is closely associated with it. And in the story of Lazarus, we see what it looks like to believe through our despair. Today we want to look at four truths to trust when you are in despair. Four truths to hold on to in your despair. When you're faced with despair in a fallen world, this is what you need to hold on to. Jesus, first of all, is calculated even when it doesn't look like it. Jesus is calculated even when it doesn't look like like it. 
Look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That's actually going to happen in the next chapter. But John wants you to know, this is all the same family. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He who you love is ill. Pay attention to that. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. Two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after he said to the disciples, let us go to, after that, this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Jesus is calculated, even when it doesn't look like it. I mean, you have to admit, Jesus' actions here appear a little bit haphazard, don't they? Like, if, if you don't know the rest of this story, it's like, it's like what in the world is Jesus doing here. He's told that his friend, the one whom he loves, is sick and almost dead. And, and John emphasizes this. He loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And, and so Jesus makes this matter-of-fact declaration. Don't worry. Th- th- this sickness won't lead to death. And the way this is written, I kind of just imagine him sitting back in his first century lazy boy stone bench and pulling open his fine woodworking magazine scroll and just kind of kick him back for the next couple days, right? Because he's a carpenter, you got that? Got just making sure. And, and I'll bet the, the disciples were just kind of like, huh, that's kind of a weird response. Like, the messengers seem kind of urgent about this, but then again, I guess we're used to weird responses from Jesus, and, and he is Jesus after all. He knows what he's talking about, and so... Not to mention, they don't really want him to go to Judea. Uh, We find that out within this section as well. But then after two days, he he stands up, kind of rubs his hand together, and he's like, all right, boys, time to go to Judea. And they're all just like so confused at this. It seems like another careless decision, especially after his first response. If Lazarus is just sick, why are we going to Judea? Because people want to kill you there, Jesus. You, You just got away from a stoning. And he responds with another odd statement. 
are there not 12 hours in a day? What does this have to do with anything? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's a proverb. And it basically means what will happen will happen. What's going to happen will happen. We all get an appointed amount of time, 12 hours in a day. And some will use that for light, for God's plan, and others will use it for darkness. Now, now that doesn't mean that Jesus is just kind of throwing up his hands and saying, ah, it is what it is in like some fatalistic sense. Jesus is never fatalistic. He's saying what God wants to happen will happen. For the sake of his glory, for the sake of his light, it will happen in his time. And so he follows that up with another unclear statement. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I go to awaken him. And his disciples are like, um, can't, can't someone else wake him up? Like, that, that, that's a pretty simple job there, Jesus. Let, let him sleep. He's going to be fine. We don't need to go die for you to wake up your friend. And they're probably thinking, two days ago, you just said that his sickness does not lead to death. Well, why do you need to go to Judea, into enemy territory? But Jesus clarifies for them, guys, guys, he's dead. Don't miss it, he's dead. <laughs> and so now it appears like Jesus is contradicting himself, doesn't it? If the, Jesus, the great physician, first says he's not dead, and now he is dead, or he's not going to lead to death, and now he is dead, it looks like he's committing malpractice, doesn't it? As you read this section, from the perspective of someone sitting with Jesus at this moment, doesn't it feel like Jesus is losing it a little bit? It, it, it seems that's what the disciples thought. They're questioning him. They're saying, aren't you making some reckless choices here, Jesus? He's making confusing and contradictory statements. And, and then he makes this incredibly important statement. Verse 15. He says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there that you may believe. But let us go to him. I, I am glad that I was not there that you may believe. There, there's our word believe. There's the, the point, the purpose for why Jesus is doing what he's doing in this moment. I, I, I've made, I made all these choices about delaying and then going at this time, that you may believe. It's so crucial. Jesus makes choices that look strange and confusing to us so that we may believe. Have you ever wondered, what in the world could the Lord possibly be doing in this situation? How could this possibly be a good thing from a good God? Have you ever played the if I were God game? If I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. If I were God, I, I wouldn't allow that to happen. If I were God, I, I wouldn't allow that man to, to suffer so much or that woman to die. I wouldn't allow the trauma to come into that person's life. I, I would just remove all of the temptations to sin from my life so that I wouldn't have to deal with that stuff anymore. 
If I were God. And, and it is our limited understanding of the Lord's complete plan that makes it so hard to believe through our despair. We are extremely limited creatures when we compare ourselves to God. And we are trying to understand an all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-present, unlimited God. We should expect to not understand some things. But here, Jesus proves that he is making calculated decisions that appear nonsensical so that his disciples may believe. Not only did he not go before Lazarus died, but he's also going to a place where he is going to die. And, and so how will his disciples respond now that he has said the word? I love Thomas's response in verse 16. Let us all go, that we may die with him. In other words, if Jesus is going to where his friend has died in order to surely die himself, we might as well join him. Thomas shows that all of his faith, all of his life is wrapped up in Jesus. Like Colby said, Jesus is the focus, the centerpiece of his life. His reasoning goes like this, Jesus is my life, and if Jesus is going to die, I might as well die too, because that means my life is gone. He fully trusts Jesus, even if that means death. And we must trust that Jesus is calculated, even when it doesn't look like it. The delay is part of his work. Understand that. The delay is part of his work. It's not an accident. It's not a necessary evil. It's part of his work. Jesus is carefully working to show you the glory of God and to refine your faith and we can say that every time we can't understand what else he's doing. We can say that every time his work looks haphazard to us, that he's calculated, that he knows what he's doing. Trust that Jesus is calculated even when it doesn't look like it. Here, Jesus is setting up the miracle to be an even greater miracle than a simple healing. In fact, he's setting up this miracle to be an even greater miracle than the previous resurrection miracles. Jesus has already raised two people from the dead by this point in his ministry. Jairus' daughter, which we studied two weeks ago in the book of Mark. Love God's timing in that. And then the widow's son, which is recorded in Luke. And in both of those miracles, Jesus raised them relatively soon after death. But here, his delay has made his work even more faith-building because we find out next from Martha that it has been four days since her brother has died. Think about all the travel time, the waiting the two days, and now it's four days. Look at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them after the, uh, concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Here's the second truth to trust in your despair. Jesus is Christ, even when he doesn't look like it. Jesus is Christ, even when he doesn't look like it. Martha meets Jesus outside of town. Mary stays behind, allowing Jesus to then have very personalized conversations with each woman. If we look at these characters across the story of Scripture, I think it's just so unique how Jesus form-fits these conversations with these women. So Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. This is both a rebuke and a statement of faith in one breath. I know you could have done something. You've proven your identity as Christ through your many healings and miracles. I know you can do something now. I don't know what, but I know that you have a connection with God like no other. And yet in my despair, I can't really understand that. And so Jesus makes this promise. He says, your brother will rise again. It seems like to her like something trite that you would say when you just want somebody to feel better. Don't, don't worry, he's in a better place now. That sort of thing. And, and being a devout Jewish woman who believed Daniel 12, she believed that in a final resurrection of the dead. But she can't imagine that Jesus means that he's going to rise again in like 15 minutes. And Jesus is like, no, no, you don't understand. I am, right here, right now, the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the book of John. Because he is God, Jesus, as the great I am, can say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine from which all life flows. I am the resurrection and the life. And so what does it mean for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life? Well, he explains it right there. He said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Notice, what what does Jesus want for Martha here? He wants belief. He wants faith. He, He wants a trust in the trustworthy nature of who he is. When he says believe in, he's not talking about believing in 
the Loch Ness Monster. He's not talking about just faith that says, eh, yeah, maybe, a little fire insurance. I want all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your confidence in me as the resurrection and life. Why does he want faith? Why does he want belief? Because it is through faith that one becomes united to the resurrection and the life. His identity doesn't change just because we are in a desperate, hopeless situation. And if you believe in him, if you trust him, if you hold on to the truth of who he is, even if you, will, even if you die, even if you face the most desperate, despairing situation possible, you will live in the resurrection. And if Jesus returns before we die, we will never die. And so Jesus wants to clarify this with Martha. Do you believe this? Get it sorted out in your heart. I know that you can't see how I'm working. I know it doesn't look like I'm in control right now. I know that you don't even fully understand what I'm asking you to believe. But do you believe this, that I am the resurrection and the life? And Martha, even in the midst of her despair, even in the midst of her questioning Jesus, has been unwavering in her faith the whole time. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What a statement. Especially in light of her current experience God is is working out a story and she can't see it now, but she knows that the story is so much bigger than her. It's the unfolding story that has been promised since the very beginning of the world that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It's the unfolding story of how God is sending His Son into the world as the Christ, the promised, anointed Savior King, the one to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. The one who is anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. The one who has the power to heal and to rescue and to save. And Martha says, I believe you are that Christ. I believe you are the Son of God. Again, she fully does, doesn't fully understand what all of that means. It's still working itself out, right? But that doesn't change what is true. Her current despair doesn't change the reality of who Jesus is. The next days would totally inform and transform her understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. Because not only would Jesus raise her brother from the dead in a few minutes, in the near future he would die himself as the Christ, as the Savior King. He would die in her place for her sins The Son of God who is taking on the sins of the world and the sins of her upon Himself. And whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He would not only raise Lazarus, He would would die Himself and be raised for her salvation. And she can trust that Jesus is the Christ even in this moment when it doesn't look like it. Even in this moment when He has let this tragedy happen when her brother, his beloved friend, is dead. 
Not only must we believe that Jesus is calculated, we must believe that he is the Christ, even when we can't see it. He's not making calculations based on what has already happened in the past, as if he's responding to all the tragedies that we face. He is completely in control of an eternal cosmic plan in which he is the Christ. The one who is at the center of the plan, the Savior and Lord of all things. And everything he does is meant to lead those who are his to faith in him. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave the trial, the hardship, the suffering, because it throws me against the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. It is the sorrows and trials that lead us to rely more on Jesus. And God is allowing your faith to go through the battering of waves of despair so that you would be unwilling to turn to anyone but Jesus. And therefore, your faith would come out more pure than gold. The truth is, Jesus' saving power does not change just because we lose hope. He does not stop being Lord when we have a hard time seeing how our current situation fits into the overall plan. He calls us to faith in who He is precisely when it is hard to see who He is. And He's made a calculated decision to come four days after the death of Lazarus so that his disciples, including Martha and her sister Mary, could believe that he is the resurrection and the life, the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing they might have life in his name. But first, he needs to have a conversation with Mary. Look at verse 28. And when he said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord! If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how, you, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Here's the third truth to trust in your despair. Uh, Jesus is compassionate, even when it doesn't look like it. Up until this scene, Jesus almost appears cold, uncaring, He seems to to brush off the first report of Lazarus' healing. He, He says he's glad that Lazarus died so that they might believe. 
with Martha, he has a theological conversation with her in the midst of her grief. It doesn't always work, by the way. But with Mary, with Mary, the one who sat at his feet and listened to his teaching, with Mary, who asks the exact same question as Martha, but is there weeping at his feet now with Mary? He is deeply moved and greatly troubled. And then we get the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. John just sits there. I think he wants us to sit there. Jesus wept. Why is he weeping? Why now? Why, when he knows that he's going to wake Lazarus up in just a few minutes, why is he weeping? There are two reasons that we see right there in the text. Uh, One is that he saw Mary weeping. There is a, a sympathy, an empathy even. Jesus cares about our despair even when he is working out something bigger than we can know or see. He still hurts when we hurt. I hope you believe that. That that Jesus cares about your despair. He weeps with those who weep and mourns with those who mourn even as he calls us to do the same. Second, we see that Jesus loved Lazarus. The Jews say, see how he loved him. Jesus' love for Lazarus is well documented throughout this passage. And his love causes him to grieve his friend's death, even when he's about to raise him from the dead in about two minutes. Listen, just because we believe that Jesus can heal, and just because we know theologically that there will one day be a resurrection from the dead, And just because we have the comfort that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, just because we know Jesus is in control and working out a plan, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn. Jesus did even when he knew exactly what was coming next. We especially grieve death. Death is the result of the curse. It is painful and ugly and not part of God's design for us in the Garden of Eden or part of His plan for us in our eternal future in heaven if we believe in Him. And He weeps over those who will experience an eternal death. And therefore, we must weep. It is only right to weep. Don't think that you are being somehow spiritual by not learning to grieve and mourn. Don't be macho. Don't be high-minded by saying, I don't need to cry. I don't need to weep. I, I know it's true. I mourn with hope. Jesus wept. And don't think for a moment that Jesus is not compassionate toward your despair. 
One of the greatest lies the enemy will tell us when we're despairing is that God does not care. That lies all throughout the Psalms, acknowledged all throughout the Psalms. The, the fool says, where's your God now? doesn't care. The enemy will tell us that he's far off, that he's aloof, that he's distant. That's what agnostics and deists believe. But we believe in a Savior who entered into our suffering. We have a Savior who weeps with us over the death and destruction that exists in this world because of sin. And we have a Savior who suffered and died so that we could be saved from death and destruction. And until our faith is made sight, Jesus is compassionate when we feel all of the emotions that come along with a desperate situation. Whether it's death or cancer, or fear or loneliness or loss, whether you have been sinned against or abused, whether you are in the dark caverns of depression or crippled by anxiety, whether you have prayers that God is still waiting to answer or prayers that He has already answered no. Jesus weeps with you. He cares. He is working. It is His compassion, His mercy that moves Him to work. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. The King James says, by this time he stinketh. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Four truths to consider, to trust in your despair. Jesus is calculated. He is Christ. He is compassionate. Even when he does not look like it. Here's the final truth. Uh, Jesus is carefully working, and one day it will look like it. Jesus is carefully working, and one day it will look like it. This scene is just a foretaste of the day to come that we've sung about already today, uh, where Jesus will not just raise the mortal body of a man, but he will raise, he himself be raised from the dead in a glorified body, and where we too will be raised with him in the final resurrection. But Jesus does this miracle so that we can understand that if we believe, we will see the glory of God. He prays not for his own sake, he says. I just love the way he talks to God there. He's not praying for his own sake, not for the sake of Lazarus, but for the sake of the people standing around that they might believe that it was the Father who sent him. 
And this is what Jesus has been aiming for all along throughout this narrative. Verse 14, he says to his disciples, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may what? Believe. To Mary, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever what? Believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And here, Jesus carefully points out his purpose for praying before he acts. He says it so that those watching might believe. And I would argue for those reading might believe as well. He prays and then he does the work. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. Grave clothes and all. And Jesus tells him to unbind him. And that's the end of the story. Like, I got so many questions about this. Don't you? What did Lazarus look like after being raised from the dead? After they took off the grave clothes, was he wearing any clothes? How did he feel about being resurrected after already being in the, the paradise? What was his experience of death? So many questions. And John doesn't answer any of them. And that's because his point is not to answer all our questions. His point is so that we would believe. His point is so that we would believe. Believing now does not require that we know everything now. It requires that we trust God now. John's purpose is to call you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose is faith and to show you what that faith looks like in the midst of despair. He's calling us to believe even when it doesn't look like Jesus is working because one day it will look like it. One day all of your current griefs and longings will be satisfied in Christ in heaven. One day the hope of our hearts, the, the cry of our souls will be fulfilled. And one day our faith will be made sight. But we must have that faith today in the day that we cannot see. And so the question is the same as Jesus puts to Martha do you believe? Do you believe? Because Jesus is working even when it doesn't look like it. And one day it will look like it. And everyone who believes in him will have life in his name and everyone who does not believe in him will experience an eternal death. One day, everyone will see the glory of Jesus. One day, everyone will see that he has been calculated all this time. He has appointed this exact moment for you to salvation, if you would believe. And he has appointed the exact moment of death. I mean, I'm sorry, of, of his return. Of his return. And one day, everyone will, will see 
that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God and the resurrection and the life. One, one day, everyone will see that he is compassionate and merciful and abundantly gracious to save us in our sin. One day, everyone will see that he was always carefully working to show us the glory of God. And so we must believe now, even as we do not have the whole picture now. David is going to sing a song for us. And as he sings, I want us to reflect, pray, just, just listen. We're not, we're not singing along, at least for the first part of it. And, and go before the Lord. What part of your story is still a work in progress? Is there despair in your heart that you need to acknowledge before him now? Maybe it's not even really your story. Maybe it's someone else's story and you need to pray for them and uphold them because they're having a hard time even finding the faith to believe. Is there a part of your story that is desperate but you can choose to believe in this moment that Jesus is calculated and compassionate and in control because he is the Christ? Are you willing to despair of yourself and all that you or others could do so that you could come to trust the God who is currently working for His glory and our eternal good? As David sings, and as you listen, pray. And then at a point, He will invite us to sing with Him. Let's go before the Lord. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.